0: The Wall Street Journal says there's a five alarm warning for Republicans today, but is it really a five alarm warning for all of us? This is Beyond Politics. We're available wherever you get your podcast. We're on the Blue Amp channel on YouTube. I'm Matt Robeson, your host, with my co-host, former U.S. Congressman Paul Hodes. We wanted to ask that question at the top of one of the top experts on American government after an historic and ominous week in America, and we're thrilled to have one. We have back on our show Norman Ornstein who is one of the most famous, and respected scholars of American politics and government. He often appears on C-SPAN, CBS, CN, Fox News. I assume that's to provide a little bit of balance. MSNBC, NPR, and the PBS News Hour. He served as an election analyst for CBS News for 30 years. His most recent book was One Nation After Trump, a guide for the perplexed, the disillusioned, the desperate, and the not yet deported—maybe the greatest title ever. Norm Ornstein, <laughs> welcome back to Beyond Politics. Great to be with you, Matt, and with you, Paul, at a quite auspicious time in American life. Auspicious? That's a lot more hopeful than uh, the note that I said no, a moment ago. It, that's great. Let's not, keep. Let's. It, keep... It's not meant to be optimistic. <laughs> oh, okay. <All> right. <laughs> Portentous. Yes, that's yeah. that is true. That multiple yeah. meanings there. Let's. I want to start with actually not the title of your most recent book, but your previous book. I used to work for a member of Congress, John Tierney, who made it required reading in his office. He used to literally quote you and your co-author every day. Have you read this book, Matt? And I was like, geez, (laughs) yes, man. I've read the book. The title of your last book was It's Even Worse Than It Looks, How the American Constitutional System Collided with the New Politics of Extremism. Now- You wrote that book 11 years ago, was before He Who Should Not Be Named, and the total subjugation of the Republican Party to someone who seems willing and able to bring down the entire American system. When you think back to what was worrying you in 2012, is what we're seeing now just a continuation of what you were worried about then? Or have things fundamentally changed and somehow gotten even worse?
1: It's actually both, Matt. And I will say that after It's Even Worse Than It Looks came out, we did a paperback version the next year, uh, which I got them to retitle It's Even Worse Than It Was. (laughs) I've been around for a long time, and I had a lot of decades where I was working with a lot of Republicans on a, a host of issues including a lot of issues involving reforming the political process, reforming Congress and the like, but others. By 2006, when Tom Mann and I wrote The Broken Branch about Congress, it was clear that we were in the midst of some pretty fundamental and disturbing changes. But you could also say at that point, both parties had some culpability. And a part of it was, frankly, that had control of the House for 40 consecutive years, from 1954 to 1994. And during that time, the old adage that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely had some truth to it. You get complacent, you get a little corrupt, at least corruption is something that you tolerate in a way that you shouldn't. You get condescending towards others. You come to believe that you're going to hold power forever. But by 2006, it was also clear that the Republican Party was verging into some very bad territory. And in that book, we led with an infamous three-plus-hour vote at three in the morning in the House, where Speaker Dennis Hastert basically engineered a really awful reform, fortunately it got improved some, that provided Medicare Part D, the prescription drug benefit. And it was such a breach of ethics, including some members who behaved in a fashion that we had not seen before and got away with it. And we saw Hastert basically blow up the House ethics process. We saw Tom DeLay in a harbinger of things to come move in a really awful direction but by 2012 it was clear that what had started earlier had accelerated in a very bad way and the money phrase from that book was basically that the republican party had become an insurgent outlier contemptuous of facts and science of the regular order of its own opposition now if you had asked me back then whether things were going to get better I would have said they're gonna get worse, but I can't say that I anticipated that they would get as bad as they have gotten. And that's a couple of factors. Certainly, one is Voldemort. I will name him, at least his nickname. But Trump was really just an accelerant of this process that had been going on. The cult, the Republican Party cult existed before Trump. He just became the cult leader. And I'll tell you just in a nutshell that what's surprised me is not that we have seen this generation of radical lunatics emerge and many get elected to Congress. It is the other Republicans, the ones who, at a time when, if we were transported back to an earlier era we were transported back to the 1970s or 80s, say, or even the early 2000s, they would have behaved like pretty much standard conservatives. Many of them would have been willing to entertain compromise and some significant issue. I can't name one or two now who fit in that category because the current Republican Party fundamentally consists of lunatics and moral cowards. And that is stunning and troubling, and I frankly don't see a way out of it in the foreseeable or near-term future. I know Paul's got a question
0: here, but I just I just want to note that in in my preparation notes for this discussion, I literally wrote down, this isn't all about Trump. Trump is a catalyst. I didn't use the word accelerant, but I thought yeah. about it. Trump is a catalyst to make things far worse, but the underlying forces were there. I'm now just going to take a moment to bask in the fact that my thinking seemed to mirror darkly Norm Ornstein's thinking, which, is, which just makes me feel good about my day.
2: Props to you, Matt Robeson. So, there it is. So, Norm, what you've just talked about really resonates because I went to Congress in 2006, wow. and I campaigned on what Hastert had done with that vote and with Medicare. And and by the way, the key Republican who turned it towards the inability of anybody to negotiate with with people about the Medicare drugs then became head of Big Pharma. We talk about corruption, but just follow the money. Curious about why things changed so rapidly and moved so far. Look, when I first ran in 2004, the war in Iraq was on. I thought the W. Bush administration was extreme. And then I thought the Tea Party was pretty extreme. I think the MAGA Republicans are beyond extreme. And it seems like we're on a path where in a few years, the Republican Party slogan is going to be, hey, let's vote for for Satan. Why not? Let's give him a chance. And was there some tea moment, some key cause that sent us sliding down this path.
1: I was thinking as you were talking that I can imagine Satan saying, man, I thought I was evil. Yeah, I was.
2: Through.
1: Yeah. To take a little bit of history, Newt Gingrich really started a lot of this. Newt deliberately tribalized the political system, and in the process moved us from simple polarization where you can still get things done. You view people on the other side as misguided, but they're still good patriotic Americans to they're evil and trying to destroy our way of life. And it was a deliberate move on his part as a way to capture a majority. And then it metastasized to the states and to the country as a whole. And once you move in that direction, once you have large numbers of people believing that your fellow Americans are evil and trying to destroy your way of life, It's really hard to get out of that and to change it. And then, of course, we have another villain who's right up there in that pantheon, and that's Rupert Murdoch, along with his son, Locke. You could actually look at the Murdochs who are responsible for Brexit, who have thwarted moves for climate change in Australia and the impact is being felt on a daily basis, Mm -hmm. and who have, as we now know from The emails and texts that we've seen filled with people who know full well that they're lying and inciting violent reactions and extreme reactions, but they continue to do it. And they've done it with COVID. They've done it with our election process. They've done it with Trump and in so many other ways and continue to do it. Tucker Carlson the other day saying, Better keep hold on to your AR 15 is. Stunning, not shocking anymore, just stunning. So we have all of that. And social media, of course, ele- uh, basically amplifying a lot of this. And let's face it, the Russians and probably the Chinese and maybe the Saudis being to try and make matters worse. I was at CBS on election eve 2008 and sitting there with some of my colleagues in the celebration in Grant Park after Obama had gotten elected, this historic move, and I turned to them and I said, this is going to unleash the racists who mm-hmm. are now going to say, see, we're not a racist country. We elected a black guy so we could be as racist as we want. And I think the reaction to Obama contributed to this, but it's also just the broader coarsening of the culture. Daniel Patrick Moynihan was a friend and mentor of mine. Mm-hmm. And I don't think there's a day that goes by when I don't refer to his thesis and essay Defining deviancy down, where if a norm changes and gets degraded, it becomes the new normal. And now nothing is out of bounds. And I actually thought last Sunday we saw the best example of that 60 Minutes, the signature news program. He says Marjorie Taylor and gives her nothing but softball questions, treats her as smart. She tweets out, Thank you, Leslie Stahl. We may disagree on a few things, but that was very fair. And you have Marjorie Taylor Greene regularly throwing out the word pedophile, which is, of course, their shorthand for groomers, which is despicable, nasty, lying incitement. And it just goes past. Now you can call your enemies falsely pedophiles, and you get away with it. That's the new normal. And so I blame not just Rupert Murdoch, but our mainstream media who continue to normalize the abnormal and let people who are violent insurrectionists, haters to America, get showcased on the most prominent programs. It's just unfathomable, but that's where we are. Mike Wallace was probably spinning in his
0: grave since he opened his interview with the Ayatollah Khomeini with, are you a terrorist? And here's Leslie Stahl with Marjorie Taylor. Let's take a break. We'll be right back.
2: In thinking about the Obama presidency and the racism that was unleashed with that presidency and looking back at the arc of American history, is this anything new? Or has this always been there in our history?
1: You've really put it well. And I was actually thinking about just that yesterday. Because in Tennessee, the Republicans in the legislature are going to expel three members, two of them African-Americans, because they engaged in a peaceful protest in the aftermath of the brutal shooting of nine-year-olds in Nashville with other protesters outside no grounds for expulsion other than screw you, we can do this. So we are seeing history repeat itself in very disturbing ways. You're absolutely right, Paul, that race has been a divisive issue from the beginning of the republic. It may ebb and flow. It is always at the center of our discourse and of our identity. And we are seeing things happening now that we have seen in the past, but it's different from what we've had before in our lifetimes. It's not that we didn't have the racists, but they were, excuse me, more atomized. If you think about Dylan Roof, who shot nine people and killed them in the church in Charleston after spending hours talking with them. Dylan Roof was a racist who in an earlier era Would have been isolated, wouldn't have been able to build communities. Maybe he would have been able to join his local Ku Klux Klan. But what happens to him? He goes on Facebook and he discovers that his vile attitudes have a large presence, and people legitimized him and set him on the path to the act that he took. But now with social media, you can build. Relationships across many areas. And of course, the worst among us can basically use propaganda techniques to recruit more people in. We've had conspiracy theories throughout the course of American history. We haven't had conspiracy theories where 20% or 30% believe them. Now you look at Republicans. And you have 30% or more who believe the QAnon conspiracy stuff, very cleverly done stuff that seems perfectly reasonable, but is, of course, utterly bizarre. And you have the ability of the NRA and others to get large numbers of recruits into believing the worst possible things. Talking about defining deviancy down, can you imagine... Members of Congress wearing AR-15 pins and then continuing to wear them the day after this terrible breach in and in, in loss of life in Nashville. Now that's the new normal. If we could change some of the structures, we would probably be able to have some traction to change the culture. We're not going to change those structures. If Democrats had been able to get 53 seats in the Senate this last time. Maybe they would have been able to alter the filibuster, bring in DC and Puerto Rico as states, implement national voting rights reform, protect the right to choose, and do a number of other things that would have started to repair the breach. We are seeing at least some green shoots in places like Michigan. We did have this terrific Supreme Court victory in Wisconsin, but I also have to add that in Wisconsin, on that, in that same election, the Republicans built a supermajority in their Senate, um, which means they're going to be able to hamstring the Democratic governor because they have no norms anymore. The powers that they were delighted to give to their Republican governors, they're now taking away because they don't like what the voters have done. Same thing happens in North Carolina. And as long as we have social media and tribal media, Fox may get devastated by this Dominion suit and possibly by another, but they're going to survive. And if they are diminished, Newsmax and on talk radio will continue to be there. It is in their business model to fan the flames of division. We have a sectarian division that I think is greater than we've seen in the country since the Civil War. So I'm plenty nervous. And what I fear the most is I think the next five years are the most vulnerable time for us. I look at Glenn Youngkin in Virginia, Ron DeSantis in Florida. Their model is Victor Orban. We are in danger of having something like that happen if we aren't able to prevail in 2024. So the next five years are an absolutely critical time for our future.
0: I want to pick up on something you said that I think is really at the heart what we're talking about here. It's the ability of our American system of government and politics to have some self-healing, self-repair qualities. And you just posed that question. Is this something that can be rescued or that we can get ourselves out of? Now, in the past, both political parties have gotten themselves a little bit in a rut, and they've managed to find their way out of it. Obviously, the Republicans did that coming out of Watergate and they rebranded themselves around Reagan conservatism and they realigned themselves around the Southern strategy. And that, that's a euphemism, but whatever. The Democrats did that coming out of the 80s and into the 90s with third way Clintonism and et cetera, yeah. et cetera. A moment ago, Paul asked you about what the drivers were here. Was there a single cause or were there multiple causes? My concern is that As much as both parties and our system of government has shown some of these self-healing qualities, we've also seen that America can get stuck in ruts that they cannot climb out of. So back in 1981, Gordon Adams described the Iron Triangle. This is something that you, I'm sure, are very familiar with. This enforcing cycle between Congress and interest groups in the bureaucracy, where they gave each other favors, political support, money, and it locked itself in place. And we're still in that iron triangle. What you described a moment ago is a new iron triangle. This is something that I've written about before between media forces, dark media, new media, including social media, dark money, all kinds of funding sources that have no accountability to anything and do not have good motivations. And the dark psychology that Newt Gingrich helped unleash where there are no longer any restraints on what we say or do. And the easiest path to victory is not just vilification, but like dehumanization of the other side. They're evil. You saw this Eric Trump speaking about the indictment of his father saying, these liberals, they're evil. they're His words, and this is rife in political discourse. So my concern is we are in a rut that we cannot climb out of. Is that what you're, or is the Republican Party especially stuck in a place that they cannot be rescued
1: from? So let me go down a couple of different tracks here. One is, there's another, let me go back to- 2001, okay, we had just had the most divisive in our lifetimes, possibly in American history. 36 days to decide. The winner lost the popular vote, decided in an utterly partisan 5-4 decision by the Supreme Court. And soon after that, we have a president who comes in and works with Democrats to get No Child Left Behind. Then we have 9-11. And the day after 9-11, 535 members of Congress gather on the steps of the Capitol to sing God Bless America together, basically saying to our adversaries, we are bloodied but not bowed and we're together. And we had a period where Bush got 90% approval ratings. We did all kinds of things, some good, some bad. But it was a very different reaction, unexpected in some respects, given the tenuous hold that George Bush had on legitimacy. Imagine today what would happen if we had another terrorist attack of that sort that hit the Capitol. We don't have to imagine because we had it from domestic terrorists on January 6th. Did we then have all the members of Congress coming together and saying, This is not tolerable. We are going to stand together to get rid of these foes and make sure it doesn't happen again. That same day after they cleaned up the Capitol, two thirds of House Republicans voted that the election had been illegitimate. And now we have members of Congress treating the rioters as patriots and heroes. So we're in a different place than we were two decades ago. Now, on another front, there's another the Iron Triangle was seminal, Gordon Adams. Jonathan Roush wrote a book called Demosclerosis, about a which was an extension of that in many ways. And it followed on a bunch of work that had been done by economist Mansur Olson about how you can build these relationships with lobbyists and interest groups that grow. And because they can be powerful enough, you can stymie action when you have big national problems and end up with a sclerotic political system that can't solve those problems. Now, the fact is, you look back, just to take the issue of guns, we were able to get an assault weapons ban through in the beginning of the Clinton administration. It had a dramatic impact on mass shootings. Then it was rolled back. Mass shootings went way up. There was no ability to act even before we had a political system that had gone completely off kilter because it is in our basic, I would I don't know if I would say DNA, but the structure of our political system where a minority that's intense that has resources and access to money can block action that's supported by 90% of Americans who don't make it their top priority if the 10% do. Some of this is a problem that's built in. Now, I would mention one other thing, even if there had been no Donald Trump, even if there had been no Newt Gingrich, we are at a, almost at a point where 70% of Americans live in 15 of our 50 states. Why? We've seen this movement because basically the engines of the economy are in those states. They're not all blue states. You have Florida, you have Texas, but people go there because there are jobs there. The major metropolitan area, two-thirds of our GDP. Now, all those reasons aside, here's the reality. In our political system, that means we're almost at a point where 30% of Americans will elect 70 U.S. senators. And because 50% of Americans live in 15 states. The Electoral College is getting more and more skewed. We will have, if we continue to have fair elections, more instances where the winner of the popular vote loses the presidency, 500,000 votes in 2000 that Gore had over George W. Bush, 3 million that Hillary Clinton had over Donald Trump in 2016. We could have had a winner in 2020 who lost the popular vote by seven million. And that means that the fundamental legitimacy of our system, even without all of this other all of these pathologies, is going to come increasingly into question. You get this phrase all the time. We live in a republic, not a democracy. What is a republic it is where voters select and elect representatives who represent them. When you have 70 senators represented by 30% of Americans who do not in any way reflect the diversity of the country or the economic dynamism of the country, people are going to vote. And at some point, they're going to say, my votes don't matter. We're going to have more and more issues like guns and now like climate and so many others where majorities believe one thing and the political system says, screw you. We're not gonna act in that fashion. We're gonna have a Supreme Court and other courts that are increasingly isolated from broader opinion. Take back one step. When Brown versus Board of Education was decided in 1954, five of the nine members of the Supreme Court had held elective office before. They understood politics. They took two years to make the Brown v. Board of Education decision because they knew that it would have an enormous impact on the fabric of society. And they wanted to make sure they could do it unanimously or near unanimously so that they could send a signal out to the country, this is the right thing to do. If Brown v. Board of Education were decided today with this Supreme Court, it would go 6-3 the other way or 5-4 the other way. And if you look at the Dobbs decision, which was opposed by a supermajority of Americans, this court doesn't care. So we're moving towards multiple crises and legitimacy, even beyond the way tribalism is creating sectarian differences in the society. And that's a combination of things that we really haven't seen before. Let's take a break. We'll be right back.
2: I'm a democrat and what I'm seeing in the democratic party is after a lot of noise about the democrats are, are way too beholden to the far left the defund the police was used against us if you look at chicago the winning candidate there moved on defund the police and moderated views on that as all democrats have and I'm seeing what I might call a little a move to moderate on the part of the democratic party obviously <laughs> given our discussion we don't see that in the Republican Party. There's no chart that now that goes far enough to talk about where the Republicans are. So what's the fix? In, in a practical sense, there are probably a lot of pie in the sky proposals. But what could practically be done to get Republicans to move out of this cult, this rut of cultism?
1: So I've, for the last couple of years, been a part of a commission of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences on citizenship. And we issued a report called Our Common Purpose with dozens of suggestions, some, many of them structural reforms, others trying to get at rebuilding civil society. I will say that at a broader, in a broader sense, if I could do one thing, it would be national service. We have to change this from the ground up, from the grassroots up. And I do think that if what happens with national service is at least people have a sense that they're part of a larger society, they're likely to intermix more with others from very different backgrounds, and it become a little harder to demonize. That's one thing. On the structural front, along with reform of the Supreme Court, which you know for a longer term, I believe has to include term limits, but we also, I think, have to enlarge the court. But that, aside, And that is obviously tough to do. Um, One of the sets of proposals that I'm most happy to support now is enlarging the House and moving to allow multi-member districts with ranked choice voting. Mm -hmm. Now, the House was effectively frozen at 435 back in 19... It was put into legislation to cap it at 435 in 1929. Why did they limit the size of the house back then, which had grown every 10 years as the population grew with the census? Basically because conservatives looked at two phenomena they didn't like. One was this wave of immigrants coming in through Ellis Island and populating the northeast and they didn't want them voting. And the second, or at least have the political power that would come to those states. And the second was the families of former slaves moving north. So they capped the size of the House to try and limit that political power. If we enlarged it now by, say, 150, we would make representation a little bit closer to the public. You'd have districts, instead of being 800,000, that would be 500,000, and it would be harder to do the most radical partisan gerrymandering. At the same time, we basically have only single-member districts From a law passed in 1967, if you had multi-member districts and ranked choice voting, I'll give you an example. For many decades before the 1960s, in Illinois, their state legislature had three member districts, and voters could cast three votes for one, two votes for one, and one for another candidate, or one vote for each of three. The districts were more heterogeneous, you got a wider pool of candidates coming in. And the incentives for the candidates was not to cocoon and move towards the most extreme part of the base, which is where so many of the voters would come in a primary, but instead to find ways to reach out to other groups so you encourage compromise and moderation. And when they moved away from it and back to the more traditional model, which is the same one we have at the national level, Of course, the Illinois legislature has become partisan, polarized, tribalized, just like all the others. At the presidential level, if we enacted ranked choice voting nationally, we wouldn't have to worry about pernicious efforts like the one we're seeing now with no labels, which has probably gonna end up with 70 or $80 million to get on the ballot, and they're focusing on democratic states with an independent candidate and basically to try and guarantee the election of Republican or of Donald Trump. We saw this, of course, with Jill Stein in 2016. We saw it with Ralph Nader and Pat Buchanan in 2000. We wouldn't worry about an independent candidacy distorting the voters' will if there were ranked choice voting. And we would have other outlets for third parties or fourth parties for those who don't feel at home in either party. To be able to cast their ballots to find a home, but not to distort the outcome of the election. So there are things that we could do. They don't take constitutional amendments. We're far away from being able to do many of them. And where you would have a constitutional amendment required would be to change the Senate. Now, my idea with the Senate, there's a kind of catch 22 in the Constitution in Article 5 that every state is guaranteed equal representation, two senators per state. I would add. 12 senators, some elected nationally, others elected regionally. You don't violate the fact that each state gets equal representation, but you would have a way around this notion that 30% of Americans elect 70 senators. You'd elect people with stature that comes with representing the nation or a whole region. And we would probably end up with a more functional Senate. Now, we can throw out these ideas, the likelihood of any of them being enacted in the short run is slim. And it's slim in part because while I believe the Democrats are more likely than not to recapture the House in 2024, given the Kevin McCarthy and the Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, Matt gates led House, I think we're more likely than not to see a Democrat win the presidency, given that the Republicans are likely to nominate another radical candidate. But it's hard to see a path for Democrats holding the Senate. It's even harder to see a path for Democrats getting the 53 or 54 senators that would be required. To change the filibuster rule to begin to move in a different direction. We're a ways off from being able to even think about serious national reforms.
0: And not to close out the show on a stone cold bummer, although I think that that's our fate here. Yeah. But I think what that what that answer suggests is precisely what I'm worried about. I'm going to turn this into a question, but it is the level of investment that everyone has in what is something that is so fundamentally broken and toxic. It's, it reminds me of, I know Woody Allen is canceled, but his 1986 movie, Hannah and Her Sisters, was brilliant. And there's this joke in the movie about a guy who goes to a psychiatrist and says, doc, you got to help me. My brother-in-law thinks he's a chicken. And the doctor says, you want me to convince him he's not? He's like, that's the thing. I need the eggs. And there are so many people who are into- Okay, we all agree that this is freaking crazy. If you get Republicans, we have many of Paul's former colleagues who are still in Congress on this show all the time. And they'll tell they'll tell us, yeah, I still have some private conversations with Republicans who will admit, first of all, they privately despise Donald Trump. And second of all, they know that things are crazy. They'd like to not be beholden to the MAGA base. They'd like to get unlocked from cage they're in. They can't. They are stuck. And I think. Both parties are equally stuck because there's locked in this perpetual fantasy that, ah, this next election, then we'll get the winning edge. And then we'll really apply the spurs here and we'll get to ride where we want to go. And it's it's not going to happen as you no. just laid out. So there are fixes. There, there are potential fixes. When I had you on the show last, you talked about three great ideas that you had to fix the fill. Are any of them, are they doable? Sure. Are they going to happen? No. And so that's my concern. So here's how I turn this into a question back to you not to bum out all our viewers and listeners, but given the stakes here, given the possibility that we could have an insane person who's willing to burn everything down back as president, or people who are basically trying to ape, given the stakes and given the difficulty of applying any of the fixes, exactly how worried should we be about? the next two to five years in America. Really worried. Well,
2: thanks, I feel so good now. Thank you. Uh, And this is our
1: final episode of Beyond Politics, thanks. (laughs) We have to be, obviously, we have to fight the fight as best we can. There have been some good signs out there, including the Supreme Court race in Wisconsin on Tuesday. We know that we have a lot of young voters mobilized. We know if we can get through the next few years, the demographic changes, but in particular, these younger generations that don't have the same views on gender, on race, the things that Republicans are using to incite and divide right now are not going to be met with the embrace of a lot of younger voters if we still have a voting system, if we still have a democracy looking further down the road. Hopeful stuff is If we can get through the next five years, we, I think, have a real possibility of being in a better place. Now, having said that, the one thing we didn't mention here is the permanent campaign. Hmm. And getting back to what you just said, Matt, when when I came to Washington in 1969, 1970, there were seasons in our politics. You'd have a campaign that was six months out of the two-year cycle then you'd have a season of governing. And now there is no season of governing. And when you have margins that are close, the possibility in every single election that the majority could change. And when you add to that, that the consequences of a change in the majority are earth-shaking. Back in the day, you would look at a Democratic Party that had 40 to 50% of its members who were center-right or on the right, the Southern conservatives, and Republicans had 25, 30 percent who were center left, but you had this be somewhere near the middle, and if you change the majority, if you went from a Tip O'Neill to a Bob Michael, it was a change, but it was like this. If you had a Ways and Means Committee that went from Wilbur Mills to his longtime Republican counterpart, John Burns of Wisconsin, the policy change would have been like this. Now, every one of them is like that, which means the stakes are so much higher, which means if you do anything to improve the lot of your opponents, you lessen the chances that you could prevail which means that working with the other side is like sleeping with the enemy. And we have such big national and international problems that it's becoming harder to find any kind of consensus right now. And that we need a breakthrough where you have a party that basically is gonna be in the majority for a while and pretty much knows it. And then we'll start to care about the institutions because they're gonna run them for a while. And we'll look for ways to build policies that can improve the lot of the nation. That's going to be a longer-term problem. And of course, we're close enough in a tribal environment that we're not likely to see any kind of breakthrough. And of course, that means as well, we're not likely to see any time in the foreseeable future when a president's approval rating is likely to, even under extreme circumstances, get much above 55. There's always the alternative possibility, which is alien invasion.
0: Maybe yeah. if we face a doomsday scenario, maybe not. I don't know. You've given me a sliver of hope, though, Norman. You, if you we really had have.
1: Independence Day, I will guarantee you that Matt Gaetz, Lauren and Paul Gosar would be talking to the aliens saying, hey, we're with you guys. Let's all work together.
0: In they that movie, are, there's literally a moment where they, they are, are on the TV and they urge people do not fire guns at the alien spacecraft because you might start an interstellar war. Lauren Boebert would be out there, direct from her perch at the first of the First Amendment, the Second Amendment cafe, like fire at the like Yosemite Sam. It would be um all right. I don't mean to depress people. You've actually yeah. given me a sliver of hope that if we can just gut our way through this like awful period that we're in, there might be a little ray of sunshine on the other end let's hold on to that. Let's hold on to that. Norm Ornstein, thank you so much for all of your insights and for giving us at least a sliver of hope. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Paul.